want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. As you, as you turn there, just two really kind of quick things to, one to celebrate and one just to encourage you in. The first thing to celebrate is that if you walk past it this morning, you see the foundation has been poured, the slab has been poured for the new uh, worship center. Tomorrow, you're going to start seeing beams going up in the air. The uh, lumber's been delivered, and uh, so uh, progress continues to, to go forward, and uh, so things are going to start looking a lot different. We're just rejoicing in God's goodness and, and his provision uh, for that. And then as I heard Pastor Paul talking, and, and just the comment that he was making about um, relationships and brokenness, right now I'm actually doing a, a number of uh, premarital uh, uh, sessions, premarital counseling sessions with a couple of different couples. It's a lot of fun to be working with young people as they're entering into this next season of life. But as I meet with them, it's just been a, a reminder to me that they have their lives ahead of them. They love each other. Everything is so fresh and exciting and, and the other person can do no wrong in the other person's eyes and it's all great. Um, and so we're talking about how to resolve conflict the majority of the time. Like that's the focus though. And, and it got me to thinking, you know, as I talk to these couples, communication and conflict, uh, it can arise over time in a relationship and, and with couples. And I, and I was just thinking to myself how no couple that I've ever officiated their wedding on their wedding day is looking at one another and they're pondering that day when they're going to be upset with the other person, right? Everything seems good and perfect. Yet for those of us who have been married for any period of time, we know that it's not always smooth sailing. You're like, Dave, where are you going with this? I have no idea. No, I'm kidding. Here's, here's where I'm going with this. It's like we are a church family. And one of the things that God has given us the responsibility to do as pastors and elders is not it's not our responsibility, as Paul said, to just welcome everybody to the church. It's one of the things that we do. But one of the things that he, God has given us the charge of is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to come alongside the brokenhearted and, and to help them. And so I want to encourage you, like, if there's a relationship in your life that you're trying to process through, how do I deal with this? How do I work through this? Um, don't hesitate to come to us and, and to talk if you're not being able to work it through on your own. I know I just potentially gave myself a lot more job to do here, right? But here's the deal. We love you. And as I meet with these young couples, I think, you know what? Sometimes we lose sight of the things that can actually help us so much in our relationships. And, and we need somebody to come alongside and, and encourage us in those things. So if that's you here today, uh, don't hesitate to reach out uh, to those of us who care and want to come alongside and help you with, with that. So I'm just... Uh, two things this morning. But now we're going to come to the word of the Lord. We're going to jump in this morning into 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I want to read this. We're going to go to the end of the chapter today. And it begins with Paul saying these words, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have shipwrecked, have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. There's a well-known illustration that's been used for many, many years. In fact, last week I, I referred to it just briefly. I can't even remember if I did it in, in both sermons. But the illustration goes something like this. Those who are responsible for being able to identify counterfeit currency in our government and in other governments, those responsible for identifying counterfeit currency, they do not spend their time studying fake currency. Instead, they spend their time studying real currency. There was a blogger, a man by the name of Tim Chalise, who has heard that illustration used. And so he said, is that actually true? And so a number of years ago, he said, I've heard pastors and preachers talk about you need to know what's true in order to discern what's false. And so he actually, he was living in Canada at the time. And so he went and he called the Bank of Canada and he said, could I talk to your person who oversees, you know, counterfeiting? And he said, after working his way through a bunch of bureaucracy, he was able to talk with the person. And he actually scheduled a meeting and they invited him to come in and to learn how they identify counterfeit currency. And he said, lo and behold, that's exactly what they do. He said, I spent about two hours with the Bank of Canada, and the gal walked me through how those who are in charge with identifying counterfeit currency spend a great deal of time being able to understand what real currency looks like, what true currency looks like, and they talk about touch, uh, tilt, and then there's another T in there. Let's see what it, oh, and turn. They, they, they touch, they tilt, they turn, and, and there's these identifying markers in real currency that every person uses to identify whether it's true or it's fake. And, and I'm so grateful that that illustration actually is true, that Chili's confirmed it, because what we're going to see today in our text is that that's what Paul does for us. If you were with us last week in the text right before this, Paul took the time to tell Timothy, Timothy, I am charging you to be on guard in the church against false teaching. Paul made a, a long statement last week about the reality of false teaching being something that can arise within the church. And he didn't just say that false teaching existed in the church. He said, Timothy, in particular, there's two kinds of false teaching that are beginning to arise in churches that I want you to be on the lookout for. If you were with us last week, you remember. The first one was this. It was a false teaching that said that there is a special knowledge about God to be found beyond the scriptures. So if somebody comes to you and says there's special knowledge to be found about God beyond the scriptures, that's false. And then he said, anybody who comes and also adds to the law of God or misuses the law of God in any way, shape, or form, again, those are false teaching. And so he said, be on, the guard, be on guard for it. Look out for it. It's the responsibility of the church to understand that there is teaching which is true and there's teaching which is 
false. And it's so serious that if you were listening at the end of the verses that we read today, because listen, this is a letter, so it's all going to be connected. There's things that we're going to talk about next week that are connected to, to this week. There are things that I'm going to use this week that I had to take from, from next week's message because it's a letter and it's all connected. But look at verse 19. This is why we're talking about false teaching, church. This is why it's so important. He says in verse 19, by rejecting this... That is the true teaching that comes from a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. False teaching is dangerous and destructive. And Paul goes on to talk about two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have gone off into false teaching. And he says, listen, I've handed them over to Satan. And some of you are going to see that, and you're going to say, what what on earth does it mean he handed them over to Satan? Paul's like, look. I've tried to present to them the truth of of God, but when you reject the truth of who God is, when you reject his truth, there's nothing left for you. You're in the realm of Satan now. You've rejected the kingdom of God. You've rejected his truth. And, And so you're in his hands in that sense. And Paul says, I don't want that for you. I don't want people to be led astray. So church... We're going to talk about it again. We're going to come back to this because in our text today that I just read, Paul does something. He doesn't just simply come and say, be aware of false teaching and hear some false teaching. He does what those who study counterfeit currency do. He says, here's the truth. Here's the truth that you must know. In today's passage, there are four gospel truths, truths of the message of the gospel that Paul emphasizes, and he does it by sharing the testimony of his life. He says, church of God, here's how you can identify false teaching from true teaching. Know the truth. And some of what we're going to look at today is going to seem really basic. It's going to seem very, very obvious. But listen, church, if we're not grounded in what I'm about to say, if we don't consider these four, four things, if we diverge from any four of them, we go off into ways that are dangerous and destructive for our souls. And so what are those four gospel truths that we can pick out from the text today? Well, the first is actually kind of smack dab in the middle. Paul makes a statement. I heard some of you say amen to it, and it was really sweet to hear that because it's really profound. In verse 17, Paul makes this statement. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a beautiful verse. It's a beautiful verse, though, that is saying something amazing and profound. You can read that verse and you can say, that's glorious. That sounds so good. I'm here to tell you that it's... That's, Far more than a verse that just sounds good because Paul is making a huge truth claim here. He is saying only one God exists and he is to be worshipped. The truth of the gospel message that we proclaim and hold to is this truth. There is only one God who exists. And Paul is saying in these verses, he alone is to be worshipped. Just go back and look at the verse. Consider what Paul is saying. How many gods are there according to Paul in verse 17? How many are there? Look at the verse. Only what? To the Only God. How many other gods does Paul think there is? None. There's only one. The statement is saying that there is only one God. 
There is a God, he does exist, and there's only one of him. Some people today want to deny the existence of God. Man, I want to get into this. I'm not going to have time, so I'm going to do like 30 seconds. There are a lot of people today talking about um, deconstructionism. They're talking about how they're deconstructing their Christian faith. These people who said that they were Christians for a long period of time are moving away from the Christian faith. And it's crazy to me to hear some of them say this because ultimately what they're getting to is they're deconstructing their faith is they're coming like many and they're saying, you know what, I don't know if there is a God or I don't believe any longer that a God exists. And Paul says foundational to us is an understanding that there is a God and he exists. Some people today believe that there are many different gods. In fact, in Paul's day, this truth was going around. There's many different gods or or gods of a different type. The people in the ancient world whom Paul was writing to, they were told all the time that there was this like pantheon of gods. In Ephesus, I told you, there was a temple to the goddess Artemis or the goddess Diana, depending if you were Roman or if you were Greek. And so in the middle of the town, I want to show you a picture. This was what, this is a representation of the temple uh, that existed. Oh, did we get the picture up there? Did we get it? No? Oh, no picture. Oh, we'll get it next time. All right. The, the temple was 425 feet long. It was, a, it was 200 feet, feet wide. It was smack dab in the middle of the temple. And, and there was the goddess Artemis in the temple. Here's the deal. Oh, there she blows. There she is. This huge temple existed to proclaim to the people in Ephesus, oh, the goddess Artemis is real. But in reality, it was just a stone statue. Paul, when he was writing this, was coming and saying, listen, there's only one God. There's only one God who exists, and it's not Artemis. There's only one God who exists, and he alone is to be worshipped. And here's why he alone is to be worshipped. Look at what the verse says. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you know what it means to give him the honor and the glory? It means that you're to submit your life to him, that everything is to be done for him. He is to be served, he is to be worshiped, and he is to be obeyed. That's gospel truth. One God who exists, he is to be worshiped by every single person. And Paul says, you want to know why? First reason, he's the king over all. Did you see the reasons that Paul gives in the text? to the king of the ages. You and I can read that and we can miss the profundity of what he's saying there. The king of the ages. Do you know what Paul is saying when it says that he's the king of the ages? He's the king of the ages past. He's the king of the age past present. He's the king of the age to come. He's the king of how many ages? All the ages. No one else can lay claim or title to that. Why is he to be worshipped, served, and obeyed? Because he's that king. Do you see this small verse is proclaiming so much to us that is true and that you must accept and know? He is not a king among kings. He's the king over every age and no one can lay claim to that. Psalm 10, 16 says, the Lord is king forever and ever. Jeremiah 10, 10, 
but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Whatever we are to think about our God, this is what we think. And then he says he is immortal, which makes sense that he could be the king of the ages because the other reason he's to be worshiped, served, and obeyed is he's immortal. That means that he cannot decay. You and I decay. Sorry to tell you that. Everything around us decays. I was talking with somebody this morning. I'm now at that age that before I attempt to do anything of a physical nature, I think about the implications it's going to have on me the next day. Well, some of you are there. You know what I'm talking about, right? Should I pick that thing up? Maybe. You know, I don't know. because. But God is immortal. He never dies. He never decays. Which is why only he can offer you eternal life. It's, you know, it's why only he can take what is mortal and give it immortality because he alone is immortal. And then Paul throws out this one thing that we don't think about as a characteristic of our God. He says that he's invisible. When's the last time you talked about God and praised him for being invisible? You know the, what the word means in Greek? Invisible. <laughs> it, it means he, he cannot be seen. There's nothing profound about it. But when's the last time you talked about God being invisible? No one can ever see God is what Paul is saying unless God makes himself known. Now, has God made himself known to us? In his word and through Jesus Christ. But that's only because he came and made himself known. Do you know what it means when somebody is invisible like this? It means you can't get to him on your own. He's other than you. And so when we say a gospel truth here is that there is only one God who exists and he is to be worshiped. Like that is true and that is something that any false teaching that comes along and says there are other gods is a false teaching. Any teaching that says that you can one day be like God is a false teaching. Any teaching that says that you can make your way to God on your own is a false teaching. Any teaching that says you are as important as God is false. That's what this truth helps to guard us against. Now, for those of us who believe what I've just said, think for a moment how these truths can touch your life right now, here today. If God is king over all the ages today, take comfort. Take comfort in that whatever kingdom we are a part of, God is over it all. No matter if borders change or presidents change, if we are God's sons and daughters, he is reigning over it all. Hallelujah and amen. And that when your body is decaying and it's wasting away, and you know that God offers eternal life through his son Jesus Christ, you can believe that the promise of God is true because he is the immortal God. We take comfort in these truths. Now this gospel truth, it helps us to understand God, but what does the gospel have to say about us? On June 23rd, I believe it was 2017, there were 12 members of a youth soccer team who went into a cave in Thailand, and if you know the story, 
They went into the cave in Thailand, and the floodwaters began to rise, and they began to go further down into the cave in order to escape the coming flood. But as they went further down into the cave, they couldn't get out until eventually they found themselves 2.4 miles underground in a cave trapped by floodwaters. Do you remember this story? It took 10 days for people, specifically trained divers, to locate these boys in the cave. By a miracle of God, they were still alive. But the problem wasn't that they found the boys. Like, that was good news. The problem then became, how are we going to get the boys out? It took another seven days before the rescue of these children was ultimately complete. There's a fascinating documentary called The Rescue put out by National Geographic that documents all of this. I share that story with you because here was the reality of those boys. They were trapped in that cave and they could not escape. There was nothing that they could do to save themselves when they found themselves 2.4 miles underground, surrounded by water. They needed to be saved. In fact, the day after the final person was rescued out of the cave, the floodwaters increased because of a torrential rain, and they weren't able to get into that portion of the cave again for another five months. Those boys would have perished. They would have died. They were rescued and they were saved. I share this story with you because Paul points to another truth of the gospel in his testimony. The truth that he points to is that while there is a God who exists and who is to be worshipped, Paul makes it abundantly clear, we do not worship God, we are sinners in need of a saviour. Because of what we have done, because of how we have lived, Paul shows us that while there's a God who exists, we do not engage that God the way that we're supposed to. And because we do not, we ultimately need a Savior. Verse 15 spells it out. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I, Paul says, am the foremost. Paul says here in verse 15, there was a time in his life when he understood himself to be a sinner in need of rescue. And one of the things that in our culture I find today some people don't always understand is what does it mean to be a sinner? Well, Paul spells out part of it in verse 13. He says, formerly, if you want to know what it looked like for me to be a sinner, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of Jesus Christ and his church. To be a sinner is to be a rebel against God. To not be a worshiper of God, but to be against him. And was Paul ever against God? When you look at the testimony of Paul's life in the book of Acts, when he calls himself the foremost of sinners, Paul understands that he was not someone who in a season of his life Loved, served, and obeyed God like he should. Paul hated Christ, hated his followers, sought to destroy anyone who followed Christ. There was a time in Paul's life when he was named Saul, where we read in the book of Acts that he stood watch over the clothes of people who participated in the first recorded execution of a Christian, a man by the name of Stephen. 
Paul literally said to people, here, give me your coat. I'm going to watch it so that you can pick up bigger stones and crush the skull and bones of that Christian over there. And he stood there and he watched it. But Paul's hatred for Christ and his church didn't end there. Acts 8.3, look at this verse. Paul, it says, at that, name is, at that point his name was Saul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them in prison. This is what Paul did. This was how Paul acted. At the end of his life, he was standing and giving testimony, and he says this in Acts 26, 9 through 11. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." You want to talk about somebody who was a rebel against God. And the crazy thing in Paul's mind at that time was he thought that he was actually serving God, but he was against Christ and he was against his church. Paul was a sinner. Now we read Paul's testimony. We see he was a blasphemer and persecutor. And some people would look at this and say, well, yeah, that was Paul, but are we really that bad? Are we really all rebels against God? What do you think? I mean, are we really persecutors? I didn't drag off any Christians lately into prison, you know? What does my sin look like? Psalm 143.2 says this. This is a psalmist. He says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. In the eyes of the psalmist, how many people alive today can be considered right before God? How many? Zero. Thank you for that. Romans 3.23 says it in the New Testament. For all have sinned and fall what? Short of the glory of God. Second Chronicles. Let's go old school. Let's go back into Chronicles 6.36. There is no one who does not what? Sin. A truth of the gospel message is God is great and God is to be worshipped by all, but none of us do it. Paul says, look at, like I'm the chief of sinners. Like look at my life. Look at what I did. But we're all just that bad. The true message of the gospel, the true teaching, must acknowledge the sinful condition of human beings. If somebody comes and he says, we're not all that bad, that is a counterfeit. It's something that's not true. Any teaching that says you're not bad is false. But the gospel message, the truth that Paul proclaims and that we hold up is not just our hopeless condition. Look back at verse 15. Isn't it a glorious verse? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners. Insert to save me, to save you, because we are all what? Sinners. Now hear me, church. Who came into the world to save sinners? Say it with me. Jesus Christ. He is the one who saves sinners. And Paul expands upon this in chapter 2. This is our part of our verse next week, so I'm not going to hit on it as much next week because I've got to touch on it now because it's tied. 
Look at what Paul says again in chapter 2. He likes to repeat himself. Verse 5. For there is, how many gods, church? One God. There it is again. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Look intently at what he's saying. He's saying this. How many people serve in the role of rescuing us and saving us? There's only one mediator, and his name is Jesus Christ. Do you guys know what a mediator is? There's a blank right there in your notes. Mediator, one who intercedes in order to resolve a conflict between two parties. Church, who's the one who serves as our mediator? Say his name. Jesus Christ. How many other people can serve as that mediator? The answer is no one. So if someone comes to you and says, God is to be worshipped and served and obeyed, you fail to do it so you're a sinner in need of rescue, like those boys trapped in a cave, you can't get out of it. If somebody comes to you and says, there is a mediator besides Jesus Christ, or somebody needs to help Jesus Christ in order to help you, that is a false teaching. Now, how does Jesus act as our mediator? How does he bring our conflict with God to an end? How does he save us? The text tells us that he gives himself as a ransom for all. Y'all know what a ransom is, right? The price that must be paid for the release of a prisoner or captive. The price that must be paid for the release of a prisoner or a captive. And what is the price that was paid? What is the work of Christ that he came to do? How did Christ pay our ransom? He did it through his death on the cross. He died the death that we should have died. One mediator, Jesus Christ, and Christ alone was the one who could pay that ransom. I'm going to bring this all together right now into the last point. Church, the message of the gospel is this. Only one God exists, and he is to be worshipped. We do not worship God as we should, and so we are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He comes and he stands in our place why do I emphasize all of this? Because the last gospel truth that Paul is pointing us to in this text is this one. We contribute nothing to our salvation. There is nothing that any one of us can do to bring about the mediator or the ransom for our sin. This is a profound thing that we must know because so many people might teach that there's one God who exists and is to be worshipped. They might teach that we are sinners and they might teach that Jesus Christ saves us. But what they fail to teach is this. They come to you and they come to me and they say, yes, Jesus is our Savior, but there are things that you too must do. And Paul in this text makes it abundantly clear that salvation, it comes from God alone, and there's nothing we contribute to it. This is intended to free us, 
and it is intended to glorify God. Once again, in verse 15, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Who saves sinners? Christ alone. Who is the mediator between God and man? Christ alone. Who gives himself as a ransom for all? Christ alone. Who paid the ransom? Christ alone. We contribute nothing to our salvation. And look at all these times. Verse 13, Paul says, do you know how I received salvation? Verse 13 says, but I received mercy. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Verse 16, but I received mercy. Paul comes and says, listen, the only reason that I am saved, the only reason any of us is saved is not because of the work that we have done, but it's because God's worked on our behalf. It's an act of his mercy. It's an act of his grace. Mercy, not receiving the punishment you rightly deserve. Grace, receiving that which you did not earn or deserve to be delivered from the cave of your sin, the impending doom of your soul. It's all of God. Hallelujah, praise the Lord for that. If anyone comes to you and tells you that you earn your way to God, as we even saw last week, this is a false teaching that must be rejected. Every sinner deserves the punishment of God. But when we do not receive that punishment, it's because God showed his mercy. We do not deserve our ransom to be paid when it is. That is God's mercy and grace at work. Now, some of you might say, that's great for Paul that he received grace and mercy, but I am too great of a sinner. If Dave, your description of being a rebel against God and worthy of punishment if, if that's what a sinner is, and I am too great of a sinner, my sin is so great that God could not save me. Do you know what Paul's answer is to you? Look at verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. Me, the persecutor, the hater of Christ and of his church, the rebel against God to the utmost. I received mercy, the salvation from God through Jesus Christ so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The beautiful message of the gospel is there is no person beyond the ability of God to save there is no sinner who is so great and entrenched in their sin that God cannot free them, deliver, and save them. No one is beyond God's ability to save. Amen? And if today you feel like God cannot love you, that God cannot forgive your sins, Paul goes out of this way out of his way to say this in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Look at this. With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Paul says when God gives you his grace, only that grace can produce faith to believe in Christ as Savior. And it's only by his grace that you can experience his love. You don't earn it because you don't deserve it. And yet God gives it. When we as a church know these truths, like a person who studies counterfeit currency, when we know the truth of the gospel, there is only one God and he's to be worshipped and we don't worship him. And so because we don't, we are sinners in need of a savior. We're able to, to be able to hear when other people are saying we're not that bad you know, just reform your behavior and God will accept you. We say, no, that's false. Because then it starts to put a burden on you. It puts a burden on me. And we say, that's not my burden to bear. I already bear the burden of my sin, the, the burden of my salvation. It's nothing that I can do. It's what Christ alone can do through his grace and his mercy. You know, and I know, if we're embracing these truths, because it does three things for us. Number one, it makes us want to share the gospel. It makes us want to share the gospel with others. To know these truths is to say, if man can be saved, if all people are sinners and they can't save themselves, but God can, I have the message that people need to hear so that they might be saved by the grace and mercy of God. It leads us to do this personally. Rejoice in our God. Verse 17, the reason why Paul, in verse 17, in the middle of his testimony, says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen, is because he's so enraptured with the truth of how God has changed and transformed his life. If you take time today and you think about the testimony of where you were and where you are now because of the mercy and grace that's come to Jesus Christ, or that's come to you through Jesus Christ, it should lead you to the place of rejoicing in your God. Today, if you are in Jesus Christ, eternal life is yours. Forgiveness of sins is yours. Freedom from the slavery to sin is, is yours. If you can't sing songs of praise, then maybe you don't know those truths at all. Because when you do, you bust out in praise like Paul has done. But there's one more thing that I have to say, which is this. If you today are hearing these gospel truths and you've not yet believed in Christ as the one whom God has provided as your Savior, I want to come to you today and say, do not reject these truths. Call upon the Lord. Fall upon his grace and mercy. Ask him to be the one who would save your souls because here's the deal. Paul describes at the end of our chapter, those who don't believe these things and those who turn from these things, he says they shipwreck their faith. Instead of eternal life, there's eternal damnation. It's why next week we're going to see Paul starts off and he says, therefore, I urge that people in all places pray. They pray. Because if this is true, if there is a God and he judges, but he saves through Jesus Christ, then we should pray. We should have concern that others might be saved and spared, not knowing him. Don't reject these truths. Embrace them as offered to you through Christ and his word. Let's pray today. Lord, the gospel is so simple and yet so profound. 
Lord, if you're the king of the ages and you're our king and our father, what do we have to worry? Lord, if you alone are the one who's able to be the mediator, if you alone are the one who's able to pay the ransom, Lord, why would we think that there's anything that we can do even now to earn your love and your favor when it's all of grace and your mercy? Lord, help us to be a church that's able to so deeply embrace your truth that anything that would come and offer a false gospel, Lord, is evident to our eyes. And anytime any one of us in our hearts, Lord, is being led astray when we're believing things that aren't true about you or about us, that we would encourage one another with these truths and that we would go out believing, Lord, what I just had said, which no one is beyond your ability to save. Lord, what comfort that brings to hearts and minds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.